Good morning, everyone. I'm glad to be speaking with all of you here this morning. Uh, I haven't spoken here in several months, which is mostly due to me working at Beaver Creek Bible Camp as a director this summer. Um, so I'll give you a really quick recap here. Um, it was tough in some ways, but it was ultimately just a fantastic experience. I had a blast developing new friendships and jumping into the hard parts of camp with a team of people that I trusted and loved at my side and making known the name of Jesus to campers. It was kind of exhausting by the end, but really rewarding, and I miss it. My go-to story this summer has kind of been that um, as a director, you know, you have to make rounds at the end of each night to make sure that each cabin's getting to bed. Um, if their cabin leader is, is kind of having a tough time quieting them down, then an outside leader's voice telling them, you know, shush, guys, it's time to go to bed. Um, that sometimes does the trick, sometimes. Um, but you don't always want them to quiet down. Uh, sometimes they're having a really good conversation. That happened to me one night in particular as I was doing rounds. There's only really one cabin that was still up, but they were asking really tough questions about, um, of their cabin leaders, like hard ones. How is God both three in one? How can he be good and allow evil? That sort of thing. Um, and I kind of had to fight the urge to join them because I think the whole reason they were comfortable asking these questions at this stage uh, this stage of the week is that it was a ways into the week and they'd built up a, a safe space with their cabin leaders. I didn't want to mess up that chemistry, I guess. But I stood outside that cabin for a while, just beaming in the dark, because the cabin leaders were answering their questions with such grace. They didn't have all the answers, nor did they pretend to, but they were honest and gracious and proclaimed God's love for them above everything else. And I was so proud of them and proud to have uh, those be the people that I was working alongside. It was amazing. We were working in order to help younger people who didn't know the Lord come to know him. Uh, and that's not so different from our passage today. There's my ham-fisted segue. Uh, I want to talk to you all today about the call of Samuel. Um, this specific story of the calling of God and how people did or didn't hear it and did or didn't respond to it. So, there are three characters in 1 Samuel 3, the passage that was just read to us. Eli, Samuel, and God. Now, Eli, we actually meet in the very first chapter. Perfect. Uh, along with Samuel's mother, Hannah. See, Samuel's actually a child of promise. The in entire reason that he's this young person that's away from home serving in the temple with his teacher, Eli, is that Hannah was unable to conceive and was praying that God might give her a child and that she would give him back to the Lord if he did. Our introduction to Eli, then, is in verse 9 of chapter 1 of 1 Samuel. And it reads as following. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord, and she, Hannah, was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord. I'll skip the prayer because it's not super relevant to us today. But as she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart. Only her lips moved and her voice wasn't heard. Therefore, Eli took her to be a drunken woman. And Eli said to her, how long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you. And Hannah essentially responds with, no, I'm praying. And 17 goes, then Eli answered, go in peace. And the God of Israel grant your petition that you've made to him. So our introduction to Eli is him, first of all, sitting. That'll come back later, so remember that. And second of all, it's him misreading the situation. Now, it's not some grave error. He just made a little mistake. He thinks she's drunk because she looks kind of drunk. And well, for context, this is during a festival. People were drinking. It's not that crazy of a guess. But this lack of sight, a lack of vision... Is, uh, is noteworthy. It's going to be, uh, oh, sorry, yeah, it's one of Eli's defining characteristics. This introduction to him as someone who doesn't see correctly is noteworthy. 
He's someone that will be blinded to the sin of those around him, blinded on how to take action on the prompts of God, God, and then literally blinded in his real eyes. But after a rough start, notably here, he makes a decent recovery. He encourages her, he blesses her, and God does grant her request. Samuel is born. So Eli isn't simply bad at his job. It's not so, uh, it's not so cut and dry as that. He is able to mediate and connect someone to God. He's a complex figure. And part of that complexity is being a terrible father. We have no examples of how his parenting was to his children, but we know the results of it. His sons are awful people. They exploit their gifted position as priests for personal gain. They rob the offerings that people make. They sexually exploit those that they have power over. And they threaten violence on anyone who tries to stop them. They're just about the worst priests that you can imagine. And all this does come to Eli's attention, eventually. It's crazy that it takes as long as it does, or that he has to be told, as it seems that he did. Again, he doesn't see. But he does eventually realize it. And he chastises them, and then apparently goes, well, glad I took care of that. No follow-through. His sons refuse to change, and Eli, apparently, refuses to follow up on it. The last thing worth noting before diving into our actual passage is that Eli's already been told by a man of God in chapter 2 that his son's behavior is on him just as much as them, and that if nothing changes, great calamity is going to befall them. He's received an explicit message from the Lord already about this, though it had to be told to him through someone else, an unknown man of God, since he apparently couldn't see it for himself. Again, blindness. So now we arrive to 1 Samuel 3. And Samuel's been a character for these first two chapters, but only through his relation to others. He's a son to his mother. He's a worker to the priests. Well, now we learn a bit more about him as a person. If Eli is defined by his blindness and his lack of action, we see pretty early on here that inaction isn't one of Samuel's faults. The first thing we read about him is that he was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli. None would be all that significant out of, out of context, but this passage is full of action words that it describes to Samuel. He's ministering, running, arising, going, saying, opening the doors of the house of the Lord, telling, growing, being established. These are active words full of motion and movement, and most importantly, initiative. Samuel is doing things. He sees needs and responds to them. He's on an active path. Eli is not described this way. Eli's introduction in this chapter is, at that time, Eli, whose eyesight had begun to grow, grow dim so that he could not see, was lying down in his own place. Here are Eli's two major faults laid out. One, his blindness has been made physical. In the same way that he couldn't see the sins of those around him, or how it was his responsibility to take action, now he actually just can't see anything. And secondly, what's he doing? He's lying down. Now, it's not like lying down to sleep is some big mistake either, but it's all this guy ever seems to do. Sit and lie down. Sit and lie down. He never acts. We're told that a word from God is rare, and a word from God is coming in this passage. And yet Eli is described passively the entire time. He sits and he waits for others to work. Even the very act of sleeping we can compare with Samuel. Our next verse says, The lamp of God had not yet gone out, and Samuel was lying down, in the temple of the Lord, where the ark of God was. Where's Samuel? He's close to the items of God. And God calls him there. I don't think God calls him there because he's close, but that's, I think, maybe worth noting. 
Yahweh himself, the Lord of heaven's armies, steps into this still, quiet night that before this had been just like any other. And in the quiet of the night, he calls Samuel and forever changes his life. We've been told that a word from the Lord is rare, that this is not a regular occurrence, and Samuel doesn't recognize him. We have this cycle play through three times. God calls Samuel, Samuel hears but doesn't understand what's going on, and so he runs to his teacher, and Eli dismisses him and sends him back, and the cycle resets. We learn something about Samuel in this. He's not a perfect servant of God yet. We've talked about one dominant theme of this passage, action versus inaction. It's time for another one here. Seeing, and or hearing, versus perceiving. Sure, you can see or hear something, but do you understand it? One of the strongest verses on this topic comes from Isaiah, but rather than quote the Isaiah passage, because I'll get to it later, I'll quote Jesus in the book of Luke, because he quotes that passage there. Luke 8.10 reads, And when his disciples asked him about this parable, he said, the parables, I don't actually, it doesn't matter. To you, it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God, but for others, they are in parables, so that seeing they may not see, and hearing they may not understand. Sometimes people can't perceive or understand what's being said about God, even if what's being said is pretty clear. It takes time and intentionality, like anything. It's a discipline to hear God. Samuel seems to be a willing servant so far. He's active and he's ready to give, and he is listening. But he doesn't know what he's hearing. The verse tells us that Samuel did not yet know the Lord, and the word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. He doesn't perceive. And that leaves him in a kind of limbo. And while the cycle of three will end, it doesn't end because of anything that Samuel does. You almost get the impression that if Eli wasn't here to break the loop, Samuel would have done this all night. Just heard a voice, Eli, I'm ready, and then go back, and then I heard a voice, and Eli, like, he needed guidance. Now that's where the interesting hook of this comes into me. Eli does understand. He perceives. He's been a priest for years. And at this point, he does have a familiarity with the Lord and the way he works. But he doesn't see. He doesn't hear. Samuel and Eli are mirrors of each other in this scenario. Samuel hears, but he doesn't perceive what he hears. And Eli perceives, but he doesn't see anything to perceive. They're each other's foils. Does that, does that kind of make sense? I made this chart that kind of illustrates what I'm talking about. Hopefully this makes some kind of sense. Maybe not. I'll try and explain this. <laughs> So Samuel's the red line, so he starts in the active track, and Eli's the green one, and both guys are moving forward through time, but Samuel starts in the active track, and Eli in the inactive track. That's the way they're living at the start of this. That's the habit they're in. One's active in his belief, one's passive. And God tries to get a hold of both of them, but it only works for one. Eli, as shown with the failed, my little hop up and then back down, as shown with the failed attempts to get him to change his behavior, has not seen what God has shown him. And now, God's not speaking to him at all tonight. There's nothing for him to see. Samuel, on the other hand, he does hear that God is speaking to him. And he knows it's something. Like, he's, he, he acts on that. But he doesn't understand, um, he doesn't perceive God. And I didn't know how to visually diagram that. So I just had his line kind of plummet after he hears. He's not heading towards perception. But what happens? The lines meet that Eli catches him and guides him into perception. That's the paradox of Eli. Just like with Hannah, Samuel's mother, despite his lack of sight, he is able to encourage and enable someone. 
In this case, we read in verse 8 that after the third time that Samuel shows up to wake him, and I quote, Then Eli perceived that the Lord was calling the boy. Therefore, Eli said to Samuel, Go, lie down, and if he calls you, you shall say, Speak, Lord, for your servant hears. Eli still has it in him to understand, even if he doesn't look. Now, it did take him a while to get there. Golding A. writes in a commentary I read that the story may imply that the senior and experienced priest ought to have had more clue, so that his failure again suggests that his problems lie with his religious insight as well as his physical sight. Meanwhile, God waits patiently until the light goes on for Eli. And when it does so, Eli at least knows how a person needs to respond after realizing that God is summoning. Eli passes his wisdom and knowledge on to Samuel, and so equips him to take his servanthood of the Lord to the next step. And you could argue that at this moment right here, as Samuel receives this instruction, he's become a prophet. That's the title of the message. And it happens because of Eli's guidance. So Samuel's been taught by Eli how to listen to the Lord's voice, and he applies his same active tendencies to his new knowledge. Speak, Lord, for your servant hears. He's active, willing, ready. And the Lord does speak. After pushing up against the text for this entire book so far, trying to break through, looking for anyone that will listen, the Lord has finally found a willing servant. What a happy ending. He gives him a message of doom. That's the thing about being a prophet. It's, it's not a fun job. Golding A. also writes that our instinct in reading 1 Samuel 3 is to stop after verse 10. Speak, Lord, because your servant's listening. Just as our instinct in reading Isaiah 6 is to stop after reading, Here I am, Lord, send me. In both chapters, it's nice to identify with the process whereby God's call comes. But we'd rather not identify with the content of it. Samuel's not stupid when he lies awake all night after God appears to him. I'm guilty of this. I, I kind of love the almost kind of quasi-romantic idea of I'm the only one that, like capital R, romantic, of the only person that actually listens to God, being in his private company, that, you know, this person that is on the cutting edge of the kingdom, uh, and not considering both what the Lord would ask of me and what a tough, lonely position that might be. The prophet is called to expose corruption and call out sin and to point people back to their God. The call that Isaiah receives in Isaiah 6 contains that passage I quoted earlier. Go tell the people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. That way they can get punished for their sins. What a tough message. Samuel receives a similar message, but it's about his boss. It's about his teacher, his mentor. God couldn't reach Eli about Eli's sin, so he reaches Samuel about it. As far as first prophetic messages go, that's a real tough one. The Lord, finally finding a listening ear, lays out the punishment that Eli's house is going to get. And why that punishment? Verse 13 reads, I declare to him that I'm about to punish his house for forever for the iniquity that he knew because his sons were blaspheming God, and he did not restrain them. He knew, and he let it happen. Eli's inaction is what's going to bring about his downfall. Eli, while not present in this scene, is called out and condemned, because over the course of his life, he had the perception to understand his son's sin, 
but he didn't act on it. If you'll pardon an on-the-nose expression here, he turned a blind eye. So the morning comes. What's Samuel going to do? The most exciting part of the story is over. Now we're just wrapping up. There, there was an encounter with the divine last night. But there is one, uh, one more really fascinating moment of temptation that jumps out to me here. Samuel's been active, yes. But he's been active in small things. Nothing like this. So in the face of such a significant task, he keeps hesitating. He regresses a little bit. It's kind of like a far less extreme version of Peter. Uh, at a loss for what to do with Jesus' death and his own betrayal of him, in John 21, he says to his buddies, I'm going fishing. He does what he knows, because stepping into the unknown seems terrifying. But of course, in that story, Jesus meets them there, fishing. It's an incredible story, as Jesus doesn't allow them to go back to how things were before they met him, to become, again, the types of men they used to be. He calls them back to shore, back to himself. Peter dives in to follow him. In our story, the first thing Samuel does is to, and I quote, open the doors of the house of the Lord. We can assume he's done a lot of temple chores before, but this is the first one that's been described to us. Why is that? I think it's because it's weird that he's doing it. Why is he doing normal chores like nothing happened when he spoke to Yahweh last night and was given a message for his own teacher? The very next verse gives us the answer to that. Quote, and Samuel was afraid to tell the vision to Eli. That's why he's doing chores. And that makes sense. I would be scared too. But you know who else would do this? Eli. Think about it. This is a classic Eli move. To receive an undeniable word from the Lord and you should act on it. And then just not act on it. To do other stuff instead. Smaller stuff. Easier stuff. I think this is the second genius stroke here. Samuel's first instinct after he receives a prophetic word really resembles Eli. He's in danger here of kind of becoming like his master. But who rescues him from this? Eli does. Isn't that interesting? Eli is the one who calls him into action. Verse 16 reads, But Eli called Samuel and said, Samuel, my son. And he said, Here I am. Once again, we get that here I am from Samuel. He's ready to serve. That moment of weakness is already passing. It's kind of Samuel's motto, in a way. He said it a bunch this story. Here I am. That's the attitude that it takes to become a prophet. We go on. And Eli said, What is it that he told you? Do not hide it from me. May God do so to you and more also if you hide anything from me of all that he told you. Eli doesn't allow Samuel the chance to become inactive, to go into the inactive track like Eli's in. And as a result of his actions, his leading of Samuel, Samuel's forced away from that temptation of being complacent. Eli's empowered him once again. Samuel rockets back up to the action track there. He shares the word that God has given him. He's a prophet now. So, this could be one last chance for Eli to correct his behavior. Ideally, ideally he would have been alongside Samuel all along. I made a second version of this graph that shows the ideal scenario. In this one... Um, in this one, Eli saw the Lord alongside Samuel hearing him, and when Samuel doesn't perceive, Eli guides him through that process of perception together. And afterwards, they both return to an act of faith together, fueled by their encounter with God. That's not how our actual story started, but maybe it could end that way. 
Maybe, even though he turned a blind eye to the sins of his sons, and he did nothing when a man of God predicted doom for his line, maybe now, when his student comes to him with a word from God himself, maybe now he'll finally take action. It'd be a nice ending, wouldn't it? God's words seem to have a pretty strong, it's too late vibe to them, but we see other examples in Scripture of God promising punishment only to not do it or to delay it because of the actions of people. He's a merciful God. Perhaps the most famous example of this is in the book of Jonah. God compels Jonah, very strongly compels him, to go to Nineveh and to prophesy their downfall. And Jonah does, promising 40 days and this city will be overturned. But Jonah 3 verse 5 reads, And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and they put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. They repented. If we go further, we'll see that the king of Nineveh says in verse 9, Who knows? God may turn and relent from his fierce anger, and relent and turn from his fierce anger, so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. The sin of the Ninevites was worse than the sins of Eli. It feels weird, and maybe it's theologically wrong, um, to compare the severity of sins. But the Ninevites were actively oppressing and sinning and causing destruction, whereas Eli was merely failing to stop sin and oppression. The Ninevites would be like Eli's sons in this scenario. They're the ones that are actively sinning. And yet, they truly repent. And God truly forgives them. Let's see if Eli can match their penance and for once make a change. Verse 18 goes, So Samuel told him everything and hid nothing from him. And he said, it is the Lord. Let him do what seems good to him. Now, he does submit. He's not so wrong or prideful to consider himself in the right or to fight back against God. He recognizes God's sovereignty and he bows before him. Darby writes that Eli, judged for having loved his sons more than Jehovah, comforts our hearts nevertheless by his submission. If he failed in the energy of faithfulness, he was yet true in heart to Jehovah. That's all well and good. As far as responses go, it could be a lot worse. But he doesn't do anything. He doesn't do anything. He's unchanged in his passiveness. We can go back to the last slide here. This would be like if the Ninevites responded to Jonah with, yeah, that's fair, and that's it. For all intents and purposes, this warning failed. Eli's not going to change. Look at the language of his response. Let him do. Let the Lord do, because I'm not going to do anything. It is the Lord. Let him do what seems good to him. That response reads to, me like a, it reads to me like a letting go of responsibility. Do what you will. I've made up my mind. The response isn't without its submissive humility. It's true. But it reminds me of a story I heard of someone who entered a house that was very against swearing, and they had a swear jar. And upon accidentally cursing and discovering that he owed $5, he hands him a 10 and says, keep the change, with an expletive thrown in. I think it's kind of funny, but that guy, was, that guy was fully willing to accept the consequences of his behavior, but he wasn't going to change his behavior. He was fully willing to accept the consequences of his behavior, but he wasn't going to change his behavior. That's what Eli seems like to me. He gets a final chance to change, and he doesn't take it. When we read of Eli's death in the next chapter, it's him completely blind at this point, 
fat with age and not moving, sitting by the side of the road, waiting, for, waiting to hear about what others are doing. He comes into the story sitting down, and he leaves sitting down. As for Samuel, the epilogue of this story starts in verse 19. And Samuel grew, and the Lord was with him, and let none of his words fall to the ground. And all of Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, knew that Samuel was established as a prophet of the Lord. We got a prophet. His transformation is complete, from a small temple schoolboy to a prophet of God, and a very significant one in the course of Israel's history. He's taken his own activeness and willingness to serve, and he's combined it with everything that Eli taught him about the Lord and listening. This last verse, 21, is just the perfect closing note for the whole passage. And the Lord appeared again at Shiloh, for the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. Firstly, it's a great bookend, because how does this chapter start? Look back at verse 1. The word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no frequent vision. And now, the Lord appeared again at Shiloh. It's been fulfilled. God is on the move once again in Israel. Because there's a follower of his who's active and listening and ready to work. We start with the passiveness of Eli, and we end with the drive of Samuel. The second reason I love this last verse is that we also get uh, the payoff of that idea of hearing or seeing versus understanding. After so much of the, first, of the last ten verses were on action versus inaction, this verse ties back to Samuel's journey from having no knowledge to understanding what the Lord was saying. The Lord appeared at Shiloh, for the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh. Samuel didn't initially understand, but the Lord revealed. Now he does. Now he's a prophet. And thirdly and finally, I just like that the Lord is said three times in this one verse. Looking back at all the times that the Lord is mentioned in this passage, it really does feel to me like he's trying to break through, like he's waiting for someone to actually be his servant. Similar, again, to the call of Isaiah in Isaiah 6, where the here I am, send me, is preceded by the Lord asking, who can I send? I mean, let's do it here. In a third act twist, having examined our two characters of Eli and Samuel, let's look at what the Lord is doing in this passage. The first thing we hear is that the word of the Lord was rare in those times. Was it? Was God actually not speaking much, or were people just blind, not listening? It's a question. The very next thing is that Samuel's lying down in the temple of the Lord, where the ark of God was, and then we get in rapid succession, the Lord called Samuel. The Lord called again. Samuel didn't yet know the Lord. The word of the Lord hadn't yet been revealed to him. The Lord called Samuel. Eli perceived that the Lord was calling. The Lord came and called, and finally he is heard. And now in our epilogue, the Lord was with Samuel. Samuel was established as a prophet of the Lord. And then the final verse, the Lord appeared again at Shiloh, for the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. My temptation is to give an enthusiastic, he's back here, but that wouldn't be true. The Lord isn't back. We can see clearly here that he never left. He's just finally being listened to now. He's got a prophet, and the language immediately becomes the Lord, the Lord, the Lord. The proper focus has been restored. So I'm pretty much out of time here. What are our takeaways? I don't know that they're necessarily all that subtle, but we might as well lay them out real quick. First of all, when we're being prompted by the Lord to repent, we should repent. It's, it's obvious, I know. But we should also emphasize here that um, repentance is not repentance if it's in word only. It has to be in action. 
A refusal for me to, from me to change my behavior is just as bad as not repenting. It's kind of like that, um, that parable that Jesus tells. I don't remember where. This is off the top of my head. But where he tells the two sons, the father tells two sons to do a task. And one's like, I'm not going to do that. But then he goes later and does it. And one's like, yeah, sure, I'll do it. And then he doesn't do it. And Jesus goes, which of those is actually following his father's instruction? It's the one whose actions show that he's following the instructions. Refusal to change behavior is just as bad as not repenting. And the second one, of course, is we have our primary themes of hearing the Lord, understanding the Lord, and acting for the Lord. And this is our word of warning to all of us here in the church. Just because we understand doesn't mean we should stop listening. Eli understood ways in which the Lord worked. He'd heard all the stories. He'd been in the house of God for decades. But when it came to his own personal life, he didn't see. Let's be looking for God. Be listening for him. Let's be uplifting and helping one another in this pursuit as well. Eli is able to help and uplift Samuel, even if he can't do it for himself. That uplifting of others is something to, to not model, follow. You could boil the difference between Samuel and Eli down to this. Samuel changes and grows because of Eli's influence. But despite positive lessons that Samuel could inspire, Eli doesn't change or grow. Let's not fall into his mistake. Let's spur one another on to action, both the teachers and the students alike. Let's listen for the Lord and let's act on it. And let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for the ways that you call us God and the fact that even when um, there seems to be times of, of silence or, or um, a lack of, of word from you that you're calling to us, God, that you want us to draw nearer to you, we pray that you would give us um, listening ears and an open heart and that we would be always attentive and ready to hear um, the word of your calling, God. We just pray that, um, that we would be a congregation and a people um, that are after, in the model of, of Samuel, Lord, that we would hear what you're saying and that we would... Um, seek the guidance of those around us, and that we would just more and more every day um, become better servants of you. We love you a lot, Lord Jesus. We pray this in your name. Amen. All right. Back up, okay? You throw that slide back up. Thank you. I was going to uh, find out if there was an electrician or a plumber that could help me with that <laughs> diagram. <laughs> It's excellent, though. Uh, I'm, I'm wondering, I, I was thinking a lot of us might say, I'm not a prophet, and so we wash our hands. Mm. And, and, I, and I'm thinking that actually we don't get to. Mm. And I'm glad that you uh, did that application at the end. But I was thinking, really, in a nutshell, every one of us is responsible with what we do with the light that we have. So you have light and you step forward. And, and so it's about faithfulness with the light that we have, uh, whether you're a prophet or a preacher or an SBC student or a worker. Uh, you don't actually sidestep. Uh, there's one comment that came in over the uh, cell. We do not need perfect teachers. We need ones that point us to God and help us to understand what God is saying. Um, partway through the sermon, I was thinking, oh, now what am I going to do? I'm going to go up, I'm Eli, and Andrew is, is Samuel. <laughs> I was a, a little harsh on Eli in this, but that's very, no, but that text is totally true, right? 
Eli, like, he, yes, he has all these personal issues, but he is able to pour into Samuel in this way, right? Like, that, uh, I'm not talking about you, I'm talking about Eli. <laughs> It's all that, good. I'm that, getting back at you for calling me Ernst one time. Okay, that's, we gotta let that go. I, I'm kidding. <laughs> um, that a teacher, he's able to in, like, incredibly influence Samuel's life for the better. And Sam, you could argue Samuel wouldn't have probably become a prophet without Eli's influence, right? Um, and there's an irony, and there's honestly a bit of a sadness to that, that despite what Eli's able to do, he isn't able to follow the Lord very well himself. Um, and so I don't want us to be like Eli in that we turn a blind eye to the things in our lives, right? But the fact that despite his own flaws, he is able to lift up the next generation. I mean, that's pretty cool. There's a lot of characters in the scripture that don't do that, that are yeah. far worse. Well, and I, and I like the way that you tied posture in as well. Hmm. And it's not just physical posture, like Eli sitting at the beginning and at the end, yeah. uh, but posture of the heart. Mm-hmm. And uh, we, we recognize the difference between the posture of the heart for Samuel and the posture of Eli's heart. Yeah. And then, of course, the inaction and the action. Uh, so thanks for encouraging us this morning to uh, be faithful with the light that we have and to make sure that we are in action and not in action. And uh, maybe reminding us that there's a difference between knowledge and wisdom and hearing and perceiving. Uh, so that's our prayer that uh, we would move forward faithfully. Thank you, Andrew.